0: Welcome to The Common Rounds, medical education for medical students, by medical students.
1: I'd like to welcome Dr. David Sharkey today for a special podcast that we're doing on just general uh, things out of interest for medical students or anyone in general. Today we're going to be talking about viruses and perhaps more specifically about David's research uh, who has a pretty prolific record in his, in his field for the last few uh, years and I would, I would encourage anyone to look up his work. Uh, he has an interview with the Canberra Times, too, if you want some more uh, extra validation. So it, it's really nice to have you on, on board, David. That's fine. That's thanks fun. so much for joining us. It's fun to be here. I think we could probably start off the podcast by discussing what viruses are and how they've been portrayed now. Okay,
0: so, so uh, what is a virus? It seems to me that often in the popular press, if there's an infectious disease and it's very bad, It must be a virus so virus is associated with very bad now clearly that's not quite true because no one wants to get anthrax that's a bacteria no one wants to get malaria that's a parasite so there are infectious diseases that make you very sick that are not viruses but it is also true that some things that make you very sick are viruses and you can reel all of those off from HIV to hepatitis B to Ebola to influenza you know, actually influenza kills so many more people than people think. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very big number every year in Australia. But the important thing to understand about viruses compared to other microorganisms is that they are absolutely linked to their host. So we call them obligate parasites. Um, they cannot do anything without their host. And what really distinguishes them is that they don't have any metabolic processes So they can't generate their own energy. They can't make their own membranes. All of those things they have to steal from the cell. Apart from that though, there's a huge variety of different viruses and what they can do for themselves and what they have to steal from cells. So some viruses have all of their own enzymes to replicate their genomic material, their DNA or RNA. Um, Some viruses, they, they do things in very different ways. Some viruses exist only in the cytoplasm some viruses do their own transcription of RNA even. So they make all of their messenger RNAs with all of their own enzymes and they replicate their nucleic acid with all their own enzymes. Okay, But none of these viruses can generate a mitochondria, which is required for energy. None of them can um, make a ribosome, which you need to make proteins. Uh, none of them can generate lipid membranes, over from nothing like cells do. So absolutely... And, and there's this big sort of metaphysical debate about whether a virus is alive or not. That was actually going to be my next question. Your next question. question? Yeah. Okay. So I think the best definition or the best sort of way of understanding that, that, that kind of dodges the question to some degree is to say that when a virus is inside a cell and it's doing its business, it's, alive. it's actually alive. But, but the viral particle itself, which is being transmitted between hosts is not really alive maybe you can view it as a spore or a seed or something so you know then you know so is it is it a life form as such well i guess it kind of is but then you get into all of these arguments about whether a computer virus is alive or not um so it kind of it kind of gets a bit same concept isn't it yeah that's right i mean it's a self-replicating entity and it comes down to you know What you think is alive
1: so what would separate something like a prion and a virus because they're essentially the same thing it's a group of nucleic acids well no so prion is even
0: worse right because as as best we understand a prion is just a protein it's a protein but so is a virus no no so so a virus is very different it's distinct so a virus has genetic material and although that genetic material can be quite variable it's it's basically doing things what the other living organisms do. Right. So it's got a genome that it has to replicate somehow, and to enable it to replicate that, it has a bunch of other things. Okay? Unlike a cell, it can never do that by itself. It has to go in and steal. A prion, though, is quite distinct in that a prion is simply a protein, and by the nature of the shape of that protein, if it comes in contact with other proteins of the same type, it can convert them to the aberrant shape. Okay, so, you put a, so, so the, the prion protein is actually a protein that is encoded in the host, actually, but you get the aberrant shape or form of that protein, and it can convert all of the same protein that's been made by the host into the, the weird shape that causes disease, and it will flip them all over. So it's converting things that are being made, but the, it doesn't have the genetic material to generate the protein in the first place. It's actually corrupting the host protein. And then that corrupt protein can be transmitted to another host. So that's, that's sort of different, again, to a virus. It's, it's, it's less alive.
1: What's the replicative potential of a prion? I don't know if this is you know, intruding in territory. That
0: that's no. what you're well, it's, it, it, doesn't, it, it can't really replicate itself. The protein has to be made by the host, and then the prion version can convert it. Yep. okay so so what it's doing is taking so if you imagine there's two forms of the protein there's the ordinary form which is doing what it's supposed to do and then there is the messed up form which is the prion form which causes disease what happens is when those two come together the messed up one can reshape the normal one
1: is it prerequisite to the protein that's that that is about to get misshapen so there should be a certain structure i'm, I'm finding it hard to put my head around the fact that. This prion can just
0: turn any protein into a... No, no, no. no. It has to be the same protein. Oh, okay. okay. So, so, um, so the, one of the things that helps you understand how prions work is that there are inherited diseases like um, Christfeld-Jakob, okay? And so if, if you have inherited that bad prion protein gene, it means that your protein is pre, has a predisposition to fold in the wrong shape. Okay, and so that is an inherited disease where you have this protein that tends to form to the wrong shape. Yep. Okay, what becomes very strange is that if you take um, material from someone who has Creutzfeldt Jacob, Creutzfeldt Jakob, and you then were to give that to a person who has the normal gene, so they don't have the prion version, by contact with that prion version of the protein, it can convert those to being the wrong shape and that's where everything gets very messed up in your head trying to understand how these things work
1: right so what's the genetical basis how how much contribution does the genome
0: so so it does make a difference so there are polymorphisms in that gene across the human population and there are some (laughs) genotypes or some alleles if you like that are more prone to convert to the wrong form, and you can imagine they're on a spectrum. So the the the, the um, allele associated with Kreuzfeld-Jakob, okay, clearly it does it by itself, yeah. right? And this was one of the things that they were worried about after the um, BSE crisis, the bovine spongiform encephalopathy thing. Is that in the, disease? Yeah, mad cow, exactly. In the UK, so it looked like there was more than one wave of people coming down, okay, and it seemed to be in part determined by what their genotype was and there was some thought still that there may be other genotypes out there and the only difference is they have a longer latency period so we would see another wave but i think everyone's decided that's not happening it's been too late now but i'm not a prion guy it's funny that prions get so so you know it's a, i guess it's a historical thing that anything one, one of the original definitions of a virus was a filterable agent So it was something that could cause an infectious disease, but you could pass it through a filter that was large enough to hold bacteria back. So it's kind of on that definition that prions have wound up being chucked in with viruses because it causes disease, it appears to be infectious, and it's little.
1: (laughs) And the ignorant people like me who tend to classify these together. Yeah, but you know, the funny
0: thing is that there was a long, long debate and there, there would be some virologists who still don't believe the prion hypothesis. They would believe that there must be some nucleic acid in there, and we just can't find it. And it's so well protected by the protein that anything you do that can denature the protein eliminates the nucleic acid, so you can't find it.
1: How valid do you think that argument is? On your, I mean, you've had, you've had such a long career in ah, research.
0: I haven't really looked at it very closely recently. I, I think it's one of those things that's almost impossible not to. It, it, almost impossible to solve because it becomes you know the, the, one of the issues with these prions is that they are incredibly difficult to denature and so the, the lengths you have to go to do that almost anything that you do to try and separate out the protein from any potential nucleic acid that's there you you look at it and you're going to say oh well you know you haven't found it but but that's because you've destroyed it in the process I think it's been reasonably well shown now. And there are other systems. So there are uh, yeast prions that people work on and other things. So I, I think it is a general phenomenon in biology that, that these things do occur occasionally. Why and how is, is still you know, one of those really strange mysteries. But,
1: anyway. but you can't really rule it out. I mean, I'm not uh, advocating for this particular theory, but maybe down the track find something so so
0: that that gives me an opportunity to say something about science and maybe something about science that's a little bit different to medicine so as scientists we're always told never to rule anything out anyway right. you know in, in medicine your job is to work out what's wrong with somebody and hopefully to prescribe some course of treatment that's going to make them better yeah so to some degree you want to be dealing in certainties so my my phd supervisor was a clinician he was in infectious diseases Um, person he had a um his special his specialization was pathology but he he was basically the senior infectious diseases person in pathology in Adelaide he used to have all sorts of one-liners but one of his famous one-liners was a doctor who didn't know the answer was of no use to anyone right because there is some and I don't know whether that's what they teach you guys today still but you know it's really important when people go to see their doctor they have some confidence that the guy knows what they're talking about or the, sorry, the guy, that's terrible, that their doctor knows what they're talking about. And I think that is that is still partly true. And one of the real issues with communicating science to the general public is that you can say to me, no one can prove it, and I have to agree with you. Okay? You almost never prove anything in science. It's simply a matter of how much evidence is stacked up towards one view of the world versus the other. One of the things that makes me quite cross is the way that certain theories that are upsetting people ideologically tend to be portrayed as being less firm than others whereas science doesn't differentiate we don't think for example that the theory of general relativity or gravity or any of those things are any more proven than the theory of evolution for example or the other one that gets people uptight now is is anthropogenic climate change right the evidence for a lot of these things is pretty similar. And to stick the screwdriver in, in one case and say, look, even the scientists can't put their hand on their heart and say this is absolutely the truth, you know, and yet you don't go and stick, in, stick your nose under every other rock in science and realise that any decent scientist will say, no, we can't be sure. Having said that, of course, some things are far more clear than others and there are some areas of science where we have very particular rules about deciding what is likely. So, I mean, infection, coming back to infectious diseases, the best example is Cox postulates, right? Mm-hmm. Where if you can do an experimental system and satisfy Cox postulates, you can be pretty sure that whatever, you know, making the assumption that you can isolate so that, you know, the key one there is you can take the agent, you can purify it and pass the disease, okay? That's, that's really key. And if you can assume that you are only passing the one agent, then you can be pretty sure.
1: So you want uh, repetition of the symptoms and the, yeah. the textbook classification of that particular disease? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's it, very strange. It's like one of those um, things about how the world wants to see everything in binary. Yeah, yeah. And, and no one wants you to, uh, to look at the fact that it's always far more complicated yeah. than that. Which brings me to my next, um, what I thought this discussion could, mm. could be based on. The introduction of viruses in our there would have been a time where we just know uh, every infectious organism as a germ, and today we have all these different separate. Like you said, there's a distinct, um, there's distinction between prions and mm. and viruses. How do we classify? What was the evolutionary um, beginnings of viruses? In? <laughs> I know it's a very broad topic, and, and, and
0: so so we don't. We we actually don't know. I mean, there is a, you know, some people would say that that uh, so there's viruses that are robust enough that they could have come from space on a meteor and survived. Oh yeah and actually, yeah. And, and, and and it was something like a virus that I organized the molecules in the primordial sloop. You know, you can take that view of the universe. Yeah. This is a sort of unknowable. Um, what seems to be very clear is that there is so you went down to the Plyon route, but you know if you look at another another thing, there are lots of mobile bits of DNA, mobile genetic elements that can jump in bacteria and all sorts of those, all sorts Transports. of things. Yeah, and to a certain degree, they're like a chopped down virus too, okay? They are a small self-replicating unit and, and they can move and they can jump and replicate themselves in genomes and they can um, propagate to a certain extent as well. You know, even if you want to think of, so a lot of bacteria carry things called plasmids. So outside their, main, their genome, they have these small circular things, Um, and actually mostly they're useful so a lot of the antibiotic resistance genes are carried on these things called plasmids and that's one of the reasons why they're so annoying or so difficult because these plasmids also usually have mechanisms for transfer between bacteria
1: yeah
0: okay so but so you know but do you consider the plasmid to be part of the bacteria or is it a parasite on the bacteria we would typically consider it to be part of the bacteria because it largely seems to be beneficial maybe it's not Right, and some of these plasmids, the distinction between some of these plasmids and bacteriophage, which are what we call viruses of bacteria, is also pretty small as well. So, the thing to, I guess, the thing to understand is that it seems that anything, any form of life, can have a virus that's attached to it. And in fact, there are now this whole class of enormous viruses that infect amoeba that they've found. So, these things are so huge that they actually, um, uh, they're filterable. So they, <laughs> so now the whole thing breaks down, right? Some of these things are big enough that, that they would be held back by a filter that would, would hold bacteria. So these things have um, uh, got great names like Mimi virus And there's another one they've just pulled up from the permafrost in Russia. Can't remember what the name is. Some great name. Anyway, these enormous viruses. And at least one of these, it appears that it has um, what looks like a virus of the virus in that it's carried by that virus, it is only active in infected amoeba with the virus and it does things um, that parasitize aspects of what that virus is doing to the cells. So, you know, what is it they're saying that fleas have fleas and dogs have fleas and fleas have fleas and so on, add in for night water. There's this quote that doesn't matter, you keep on going down and down and down, there's always someone parasitizing you, right? And, and so viruses get close to the ultimate, right? Because they're carrying, you know, they travel very light, right? Um, and different.
1: you can't just shake them off.
0: And right. and there is, yeah, there's a, there's a very um, there's a big variety, of course, you know. Again, from these huge things, which actually do a lot of stuff that start crossing into the boundary. So there are viruses, for example, that do encode the transfer RNA, um, so tRNAs, which are involved in protein synthesis. Mm-hmm that's sort of crossing the line into things we don't think viruses should do but some of them do that yeah and then you've got other virus i mean you know things like um, polio picornaviruses. really this idea that peter Medawar had which was a virus's bad news wrapped in protein right that's polio all over right it's a tiny little piece of very very bad news um in in a protein shell and that protein shell is so small that if we made it we'd consider it to be a nanoparticle so, you know, you've got that at one site on one end, and at the other end, you've got things now that are so large that they're actually, they were originally mistaken for being bacteria. Mm-hmm. So, so, the first giant virus was originally called Bradford coccus. It was found in a cooling tower in a hospital in Bradford when they were looking mm-hmm. for um, Legionella, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took many, many years before um, someone actually stuck some on electron microscope and went, this doesn't look like a bacteria, it looks like a virus.
1: Right. And it, it's sort of hard because uh, the medical community already has this established bacteria that you get legion the Legionella bacteria inside water coolers. Yeah. So you automatically assume that you have to sort of defend that, that thing that medicine has said this, so we need to keep it that way. Yeah,
0: but if, you know, you, you, in science, you know, you always apply Occam's Rosa as well. So that, that is that you, you, you try and eliminate all of the most outlandish things. And you, you always say, what is the simplest explanation of the observation? You know, and that mostly serves you pretty well, but it's not great when there's surprises, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Some, sometimes biology, but in particular, turns out to be bizarrely complicated for, for reasons that aren't apparent.
1: It's funny enough. It's it's one of those things that I feel that the more you learn about this, the more you actually realise that we don't really know much. Don't, no, 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 absolutely. Such a big feel, like you talked about how how you get viruses that are uh, that are parasitic to other viruses, which brings me to the next question. How, how, how do you see this classification system change when you have, say, like like you said, you talked about plasmids. What stops it from being classified as, is it an organelle in the bacteria or is it another uh, organism on its own or is it a virus? Or what about viruses that live on viruses and virus that live on amoeba? Surely the differences, what, class, what <sighs>
0: unites them? Well, it gets a bit confusing, I guess. I mean, typically I think... You know to, to try and make your head work so you know it just doesn't explode you, you have to put things into certain boxes so you can understand Well, you could see what we call a classical virus so there's something that um, has a little home it puts itself in when it goes between hosts whether that's a protein shell with a lipid bilayer as well or whatever but it's got its nucleic acid and that enables it to go between hosts okay then when it gets into a new host it does this business of uncoding starting to make its you know uh, transcribe its genetic material to take over the cell then it starts making its own proteins then it starts putting itself together into its little house again in the virion again so it can be transmitted to the next host okay that's classic virus yeah. and if it's got all of those things you know you look at it and you know you're going to call that a virus at the extreme ends it starts getting a little bit confusing and And we call things viruses because they look like viruses and perhaps the best example with that would be endogenous retroviruses so this is these are these units that are all through our genome you know some ridiculous fraction of our genome five to ten percent is taken up by these bits of dna and when you look at them you go to yourself this looks like these things come out of retroviruses they don't look like they belong to ordinary mammalian dna they don't look like anything else but damn they look like retroviral bits Mm -hmm okay um and so you can identify it because it looks like that by the nucleic acid but um the endogenous ones and particularly the ones that are completely inactive they're now just elements that are passed in your genome normally they have no real relevance maybe they're making some protein maybe they're not maybe they're just sitting there you know they're they're what they're they're making up part of what we call the junk dna or some people call the junk dna and that's another argument I'm not going to buy into. Whether whether the junk DNA is doing something useful, um, whether that usefulness is beyond just being there because you know it's it's kind of like the raw materials for evolution to work on later if it needs to, or, or whether it's you know everything is kept for a purpose at a given time. Okay, but um, you know what's really interesting about these endogenous viruses, and there was a recent, well, it was the last few years ago, um, a paper which was about Um, a virus they found in koalas. Okay this is a retrovirus of koalas and there are some populations of koalas where this virus is working like an ordinary virus so that the virus is being transmitted between koalas but you can find a, a very closely related genome that has become completely endogenous in a completely separated population of koalas. So you can actually see this this transformation this sort of whether you want to call it evolution or whatever, this switch between the form of virus that's able to to move itself um, to new hosts and when it's just stuck in the journal, in the germ in the in the DNA, it's in the germline and it's just transmitted every time you have a baby koala, well, it, the, the, the virus goes with you. Right. So things at the edge get very messy. But again, if 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 we're talking about viruses, there has to be some nucleic acid. And that actually gives you another handle, like I was saying, to to put on things. Because these days, you know, if it sits still, we're going to grind it up and sequence it and work out what the sequence of the nucleic acid is, right? And once you do that, then you can start spotting similarities, okay? So that's what allows us to find these elements in the genome, and we go, that looks like it comes from a virus, okay? Is it still a virus? Well, no, not. Well, whatever you know, it's a it's a genetic element in our genome, we call it an endogenous retrovirus. But it's not a virus in the sense, in the classical sense anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, things like prions clearly aren't viruses because, as we was discussing before, there doesn't seem to be any way we can we can get a nucleic acid out of that. Yeah. So. You know, if you want to cut it back down again to this excellent quote from Peter Medawar, which I just love, bad news coded in protein, that's what's going to transmit the virus between hosts. I think, yeah. And, and as you get out to the extremes, you know, it starts getting difficult to call. But things like size don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of these other yeah, things. Um, because there's such a variation. Right. But, but I think if you, if you want to hang on definitions, you're going to say, it has to have some nucleic acid. Okay, it's almost certainly going to be protecting that nucleic acid between hosts. Um, that nucleic acid is going to code for a bunch of virus things which can only be made when it's inside a host cell and that is has to be done that way because the virus isn't able to make energy, make its own proteins, make its own lipids. There you go.
1: And just cutting it back to yep. the discussion we had earlier about the endogenous retroviruses, what's the research at right now? Because um, my understanding, like you t- talked about the, the paper on koalas, mm. are we still looking into the long-term effects, long-term differences? Has it already begun? Uh, how do we prove that these differences are uh, exclusively to retroviruses and not just, you know, an environmental thing? Because clearly they're not, you wouldn't want them to... Well, so
0: to in the case of, in case of that paper, I can't even remember if they were assigning any disease to the virus or not. Uh, they may or may not be. I, I can't remember now. I can't remember the paper. Um, but what was the, the, the key thing that, that was of most biological interest, though, was that um, the transformation between endogenous was actually caught in the act, if you like, with a particular virus. And so what was what was demonstrated or, I guess, um, what we found the smoking gun for, right, again, we don't prove anything, but the smoking gun was that it is possible for a virus that is propagating um, exogenously, so infecting cells, making your viral particles, going to a new host, for retroviruses, we can actually find it a case where we're seeing in real time in a, in a, in a related population that, that, that has become endogenous, can no longer um, be spreading that way, if that makes sense. So um, it was something that was predicted to happen. It was something that everybody was very comfortable with, but then you see the smoking gun, right? You can see it happening in real time, and that's what was exciting about that paper. If you want to go on and start talking about other viruses, um, what's really important to understand is that retroviruses are a very special class of virus because the first thing that they do when they get into a cell is, although they have an RNA genome, they turn that into DNA and they integrate that into the genome of the host, right? And that's a really key thing about retroviruses. Um, and mm-hmm. if it wasn't that that integration into the host was such an integral part of how they did business, then they wouldn't become endogenous, yeah. if that makes sense. Now, there are some other viruses that occasionally they end up getting a little bit integrated into the DNA, but it's a very rare event. You know, it's not their main game. It's something that happens on the site.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, adenoviruses sometimes can do it. Um, uh, particularly in and in some of these are artificial situations. So if you're growing adenoviruses in culture where you're putting vast amounts of virus on vast amounts of cells, you can sometimes get bits integrated into the genome. Um, um, bits of papillomavirus can get integrated into the genome. Okay. Um, that's an established thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, um, uh, why the, the virus can cause cancer, but the virus is gone, right? Yeah. Because it's left itself behind. You know, but it's not happening often enough that it's going to get into all the cells in your body and then potentially into the germline, yeah. right? And that's what's required for a, for a virus to become endogenous in that way. And so it's, as far as we know, and again, remember, we only know what we know, what we can find. As far as we know, it's only retroviruses that seem to do this often enough. Um, that, that it, and, and over historical time, you know, because our genome is like a history book in some ways of stuff that's happened. We know this has happened a lot. Because otherwise we wouldn't have so many of these damn things in our genomes, right? Yeah,
1: Five to eight <laughs> percent.
0: Yeah, yeah, a, a, yeah. It's a lot. So, you know, and the, the you can even you can even by by comparing different species, you can sort of work out where in evolutionary history mm-hmm. these things have been acquired.
1: Can you use that to sort of pinpoint a time where retroviruses emerged into our ecosystem?
0: No, because they've always something like that's always been there. Oh, okay. I think I think that's true. I could be. I could be misspeaking there.
1: Is there a cumulative effect? So in the next 100 years, we'd have a higher proportion of these retrovirus DNA inside our genome.
0: I think it's different in different animals. And I don't know. The answer is I don't know. Right. I'll just say I don't know.
1: So it's just something that maybe we wait can see in the future?
0: I mean, I, again, one of the problems with dealing with evolutionary time is we're talking about a lot of time. You know, and it, it's actually very really difficult for... I mean, it's not as bad as geological time or astronomical time, right? That's that's even worse to try and wrap your head around. But, you know, we're so... We're, you know, for some of us, we can't even think about what we're doing in the next hour or the next day or the next week, right? And then, you know, I think we can get around our heads. We get our heads around it, the frame of a human life, you know, maybe a couple of generations. But when we start talking millennia, I, I think it's actually quite difficult to think about and, and it's
1: very difficult to prove as well because it's out there it's so such a big time that
0: you, so many yeah you you can and you start having to have models about 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 um you know how many mutations um are going to accumulate over time and all those sorts of things but it's not even so much a matter of proving it now i mean the the theories and the models are pretty good if you want to be a seven-day creation type person and you want to date the earth being, okay, you actually have to postulate that God is is a pretty entertaining character, right? Because what he's done is he's gone buried dinosaur fossils, you know, just to test us, you know, and he's designed our genome and our DNA to have all of these perfectly timed things, you know, just to distract us and entertain us, right? Just to create jobs. Uh, clearly to create jobs okay so it doesn't hang together very well and you you start having to to suggest that not only is there god that did this exactly when we say but you know either he's got a sense of humor or he's actually a little bit nasty (laughs) (laughs) i like
1: like the sense of humor yeah yeah.
0: maybe maybe that maybe that's right i mean that's so and, and to be quite clear um i'm talking strictly about seven day creation here where you say that everything happened and we're, we're including, you know, Noah taking animals two by two and all of that kind of literal thing. I, I don't want to make any comments about whether or not there might be a, a creator. I think that's another quite difficult argument. And I'm going to leave that to the likes of um, Dawkins and, and all of those sorts of guys um, who've thought about it a lot more. That's a, that's a theological argument.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's probably a good thing on so our area of expertise either. Um, I, if I recall correctly in your lecture, you talked about these retrovirus um, in our genome mm. helping to uh, integrate the placenta, the blastocyst into the placenta. So is that something that's already uh, established or is a system a hypothesis?
0: Okay, so, so what it does is... Um, before Im- implantation, you get the, um, the trophoblasts fuse with each other, and they make this syncytiotrophoblast. Yeah. Okay, so it's essentially one giant cell, which which marks the border between the maternal and fetal border. Okay, yeah. which implants. So um, that's pretty well for humans. That's pretty well established that there is a, a protein that allows these cells to fuse, and that protein um, essentially is. Um, Uh, is a retroviral protein that in the retrovirus would have allowed the retroviral envelope to fuse with the cell envelope so it's an identifiable protein and it's doing a function not that dissimilar how it is that that has been co-opted because this is not across all mammals how that this has been co-opted in humans to have this function um, that's not at all clear that's what i don't understand okay Um, but i don't think at least, to my, the best of my knowledge, nobody has refuted that and said, "Well, actually, this protein is there." But you, I mean, and there may be other ones that are required as well. But you know, that's what it looks like. This guy does.
1: How do we know that this protein isn't something that's always uh, been integral part of the human genome? So, so you're going to
0: do um, you're going to do sequence similarities, right. and you're going to ask yourself, does this look like something of you know mammalian origin, or does it look like something of, of viral origin? And the other thing, too, is that for, for a function like that, if it was from the mammalian origin, you'd actually expect to be able to trace ancestors of this protein back all the way through to, to early mammals, right? Or to um, um, current mammals that are only related to us by a very distant ancestor. That's the best way to think about it. One of the difficulties with, difficulties with evolution is that we actually don't have the record of all of our ancestors. Okay, but what you do is if you have two species, um, you look at where it seems that they've diverged and you know they have a common ancestor sometime previous to that time. So you can date that. So if it was mammalian, you'd be able to use that sort of evolutionary thinking and you'd be able to find um, orthologs across the species, right? That's quite different with, with this protein is that when you start doing that sort of sequence similarity, the only thing that comes up is retroviruses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so can we can we just talk about just general uh, clearly? I haven't thought about this problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, The the just general uh, viruses that are in, uh, an integral part of our community, uh, our mm. ecosystem today. Things like HIV, things like influenza. Yep. Um, what are what, what are the properties of it? I'm thinking in, on on a very um, basic scale. As why does it, how long does a virus stay outside the human body and how long? How, how oh, okay. Long. How um, do you study that? I mean,
0: all of all of those things, you know, are so incredibly variable. I think one thing that I try to emphasize in the lectures, and and I would say to anyone, is that there is more diversity across all the different viruses that we know. So much more diversity than 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 the diversity, and I'm talking about in terms of really basic mechanisms how they do business, um, than than across all the rest of life in some ways, right? Everything else I'm fond of saying is kind of boring because it's got a DNA genome and it makes proteins. They're regulated in various ways. So your DNA makes RNA makes proteins. There's a lot of regulation that involves RNA now, and so it's not quite as simple as we originally thought. But it's pretty much that's the way it happens. Whereas with viruses... You can have a DNA genome. You can have a single-stranded DNA of DNA. You can have an RNA genome. You can have a single-stranded RNA genome. You can have a circular genome. You can have a linear genome. You can have segments of, you know, like chromosomes like we have. All anything goes, a virus seems to be able to do it. So, And, and, and so that's just the way it has with genomes. And then you can have some viruses that choose to have just a protein shell. Some have protein with a lipid around. Generally, if it's got a lipid, it's got some viral protein stuck in it as well often those proteins have got a lot of decoration with carbohydrates with sugars. So again, this vast diversity, um, some viruses like, like I said, polio before is tiny and other ones are huge. And then pretty much anything you can imagine is gonna be the same. So I'll give you an example. Um, The two viruses I work with in my lab are often Grouped broadly by virologists because they are both large DNA viruses. So one is vaccinia virus, which was used as a smallpox vaccine. The other one is herpes simplex virus, which causes cold sores. Now both of these have relatively large genomes, so that means they've got you know a hundred or so or more. So vaccinia is more like two hundred genes. Um, so that's considered to be a large genome for a virus, um, and it's double-stranded DNA. But beyond that, there's Pretty little similarity, really. One of them does all of its business in the cytoplasm, the other goes into the nucleus. Uh, one pretty much only infects skin cells very effic- uh, efficiently, vaccinia virus. Um, the other one infects skin cells but parasitizes um, uh, neurons, so it can go into the nervous system as well. So that's quite different. Herpes simplex virus is relatively unstable. Um, so, you know, if we're working with it in the lab and someone Let's say ice bucket thaw out and it sits in the you know sits in the slurry and then water for a couple of hours or leaves it on the bench for a couple of hours. There's not going to be a, an awful lot of infectious virus left. You know it decays fairly quickly.
1: Is this because of protein structure? The
0: the it's just, it's just it's so so in, as as a general rule, viruses that have envelopes dry quickly and once they're dry, they're dead. Right. Okay. Um, as a general rule, it's not always the case. But vaccinia is also an envelope virus. But it has a form of the virus where the envelope is incredibly tough. And it's so tough that it can be freeze-dried. And that was one of the reasons why the smallpox vaccine was so effective when it, when it was used, because you could take this thing, you could grow it up, you could freeze-dry it, you could ship it at ambient temperature, you could reconstitute it, and hey, presto, back comes the virus to life. Yeah. And when I'm moving, shipping viruses to, to and from collaborators, I've had virus sent to me from South America um, at ambient temperature, which took nearly a week, I think it was. And when we got the virus out, there was pretty much as much virus there as I was told was put in the tube. It hardly lost any of its infectivity. Okay? If you did that with herpes simplex virus, you would end up with very, very little virus left. You'd get some virus left, but you know, you would have much, much less. So, so that's going to determine how, how, how long the virus hangs out outside the body. And also the conditions make a difference too. You know, for things that are going to dry, um, if it's more humid, it might be better. If they are, you know, left in a gob of spit or snot, they're going to last a bit longer, right? Then if they're just drying, if they're completely desiccated and drying. So all of those things wind up being um, very variable depending on the conditions. And you can state some numbers and they're just going to be averages. Again, though, um, one of the things that, is important for people to understand is that the things that are really difficult to get rid of by and large are the non-enveloped viruses that are just got a hard protein shell and so these are things like the virus the norovirus which causes um, epidemic gastro it's notoriously difficult to get rid of right um,
1: like you told us a story about the ship like the
0: cruise ship right and, and and you can see the epidemiology in this ship so they had an outbreak they took it back to port they did some superficial cleaning and sent it out almost straight away. They got the outbreak back. They took it back to port. They spent seven days scrubbing it. They went out, and that virus was still there. And some people got sick with that virus again on a third cruise.
1: How did they fix the solution? Did they burn the ship? Did they? Everyone <laughs> traveling with the sadly,
0: virus? sadly, I didn't see that. They they don't include the end of the story in the paper. I mean, it was a they only showed that part but you know at at some point at least if i was operating that cruise line i'd be saying no you're not coming back on my (laughs) boat again (laughs) right if i was the epidemiologist i'm saying i'm not going on your boat again (laughs) um so that's that's a good example those viruses are quite tough um adenoviruses are relatively tough as well um they don't have an envelope um but you know one of the other things that that that's important is density of population and stuff you know humans are kind of warm and wet so we're really good at transmitting virus and you've got a high density of people you're going to transmit more frequently. You know, there's often a thing that they say that um, germs germs don't fly they hitchhike and th- th- there is some part there is some some truth in that you know so I guess we don't know for example how frequently flu is transmitted because you know someone wipes their nose or their eyes, or coughs on their hand and touches the door handle, which somebody else then touches, versus they happen to be in the same room when the person sneezed and filled the room with aerosol. Right. Um, and, and for 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 a lot of these viruses, they're probably pretty happy to get away to get around any way they can. And there'll be some kind of equation that some routes maybe you need less infectious virus to get in, to get sick. You know, so you know something that's transmitted well by the aerosol route. You know, you may not need very much if you're going to breathe it right down into your lung. You may need a lot more if if you're going to deposit it in your upper respiratory tract or something by rubbing your eyes or you know, whatever. And there are other things that 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 are, are much better at those sort of contact.
1: I find this, um, this entire thing, like, as you spoke about, this entire concept about the viability of viruses outside of the body very interesting because i grew up in botswana oh, yeah. which is in sub-saharan africa and it's one of those, i think right now it's the second uh, it's it's second highest It's got the second highest rate of hiv infections okay and when i was a child this was uh, we were first we were easily first and uh, as we grew up we, we we were always told different accounts about a teacher would come <clears> and talk g- give a talk on hiv and, and sexual education and and they would always have a different theory. Everyone has a different theory about how long the HIV virus stays outside. How long you can you have to wait for a blade that has cut someone with the oh, HIV okay before you can use it again? Yeah. Like how to how to clean those kind of blades? How to um, the fact that th- this is a story about infamous story about a doctor who was doing an operation and had a drop of blood go into their eyes and they got AIDS something that like, which you, you can't really verify because we're kids and we didn't have the internet. But um, I th- I think even now after doing a degree in science and halfway through medicine, I still don't know the answers to that. Do you, do you have an answer
0: to it? No, I don't have an answer. I, I mean, I think, I think what you want to do though in these situations is you want to, again, everything, everything ends up being an average time. And so if you're wanting to weigh up risk, you do it on an average. So, um, you know, with, with HIV, Am I ever going to say there is never going to be a situation that you could never get infected through, you know, um, a, a, a stray splash of HIV-infected blood going, you know, touching a cup or something? Would I ever want to say that that's impossible? I'm probably not going to be able to say that. Am I ever going to say that that's a very likely way? No, it's, it's not likely. It's incredibly unlikely, you know? Um and so we do know what are, you know, the best ways to catch HIV and, and, and not, you know, and, you know, unprotected sex with someone with uncontrolled HIV is a very good way to get HIV, right? Um, I mean, we know now that people who are treated with the highly active antiretroviral with heart therapy, actually their, their HIV loads are incredibly low and there is some suggestion now that, um, you can treat certain high-risk populations prophylactically with these drugs.
1: Yeah. And it's been shown to
0: work, as and, and, and it works. Yeah. And that then starts getting very controversial because what you're doing is identifying people who engage in behaviours that a lot of people would wag their fingers at and say, you shouldn't be doing that. And so you get into this whole argument of, should we be minimising harm or risk or should these... People, you know, have to pay for their sins. You know, it, it becomes, becomes a very difficult thing. From a detached public health point of view, it's almost a no-brainer. Yeah.
1: Right? But then there's also the economy costs about, no, that come in as well. Right. But that also to makes to it a no-brainer.
0: Yeah. The cost of the treatment in a country like Australia versus the cost of managing someone with the HIV, yeah. it's easy. Yeah. You know, it is an easy thing, but people can't get their head around the moral dimension. That's what makes it politically difficult. And, and it's really interesting in these things. It's very country-specific and culturally specific. So, you know, in Australia, we had relatively little trouble with uptake for the papillomavirus vaccine. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is a vaccine that you're going to give to stop people getting cervical carcinoma. Um, and you're going to give it to 14-year-old girls to make sure you get them before they're sexually active.
1: Right. And there's an argument that when you give people this vaccine, it encourages them to go ahead and... Right.
0: And, and one of the things that's really interesting about that argument with, with cervical cancer is that it's really interesting. As far as I'm aware, people don't stigmatize people with cervical cancer as being promiscuous even. You don't think about that, do you? Yeah, definitely not. Right? And yet there's a very, very strong link there. <laughs> so, so this is a curious one. And certainly in a lot of places in the States, it's been very hard to introduce that vaccine. Right. And it's over that objection that, that, that um, it licences promiscuity. It's a misunderstanding of what really happens and what kids really do, irrespective of what you want them to do. Um, it's a misunderstanding of perception of risk of students versus their parents, <laughs> of you know, young people versus old people. And, and, it's, and it's a misunderstanding of the biology, right? HIV is another good example where, where the, you, know, you get into these difficult... This is this conversation is just going all over the place. By the way, <laughs> I hope you're alright with that. Um, I'm I'm terrible. I'm just going to go everywhere. I'm
1: um, enjoying this conversation. Okay,
0: that's fine. So, transmission of other things. You know, again, look at what the evidence is. There was a, the the other recent one that was was worth thinking about was what was going on with Ebola and the almost almost state of paralysis that that certain countries and um, places got into about this idea of importing an Ebola case, you know, and how it would be a disaster. And yet everybody who really looks at Ebola and understands how it works would say that, um, you know, Ebola is not an especially effective pathogen. It has a, um, a, a very low R number. So the R number is the number of new cases from any given case. And particularly in the Western world, where we can isolate relatively quickly, um, you know, the chances of that virus actually getting out into the community, you know, and causing the devastation that you think of, Hollywood style, right? it's very, very low, very low. And what happened in West Africa was just such a horrible coincidence of political instability, of lack of infrastructure, um, of societal breakdown. And this virus all at the wrong time was like a perfect storm that allowed this epidemic you know to really blow out um, and 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 become the huge tragedy that it was but it was never the same level of risk that, that you know that it would happen and I think this is exactly what played out there were a few aid workers who came back to the States or came back to Europe and it didn't spark an, an epidemic.
1: Oh, exactly. They travelled in a plane which is a closing... But but even...
0: Course. even I mean, the point is they went to an ordinary hospital. Yeah. Some of them were in the community before they got sick. Yeah. It didn't spark an epidemic. Yeah. And yeah. at the same time, there were city officials and state officials jumping up and down talking about quarantine and, and stuff like this. There were other people who were just saying, you know, calm down, keep your hat on. Yeah. You know, this is the facts of the virus. And... You know, in some cases, good sense prevailed. I mean, I had this sense in Australia that a lot of people were just terrified. We didn't want to send aid workers to to these countries in case they might bring the virus back here. It was an unfounded fear because people didn't want to believe the science. Which sometimes is the case. I mean, certain things, you know, provoke irrational fear. So, you know, a virus that leaves you dying, bleeding from orifices and stuff, you know that's that's pretty horrific. You know it's right up there with um, sharks and all of those other irrational fears that we have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it doesn't. You know it. If you if you put it rationally next to the things that kill many Australians, um, uh, you alcoholism. know alcoholism, motor cars yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd never get in your car again.
1: <laughs> Um, infectious doses you mentioned the r value can could I, could I just quickly let's throw this discussion a bit more here and there yeah 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 the, so what, what what are viruses that have a high high r value measles. measles Okay.
0: you know it's like i should look it up on wikipedia but but um I, I, you know it's 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 above 10 right it's
1: it's and what's it's, ebola like in uh, comparison
0: to that it's less than one i think uh it doesn't matter. It's, it varies widely. Ebola is very, very low, yeah. um, and and things like measles are what's high.
1: Um, do you know how this is calculated? What's the scientific basis?
0: Yeah, so you do it on epidemiological modelling. So you can you can trace back cases. You can find out how many cases each person is infected, and what you do is uh-huh. you do this over several um, epidemics, um, and that gives you some, you know, some understanding of. Of how infectious it is
1: and I suppose I'm just gonna guess that this is vulnerable to limitations like cultural differences like
0: it's it's all it's all on an average basis so it's going to be what the situation was like um, what was happening at the time there's a whole bunch of stuff exactly exactly like that 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 it's going to make a difference so it's an average number depending on the situation there's always some extrapolation so you know for example Trying to work it out for something like smallpox now is really difficult because it's eradicated. It's it's eradicated. That we don't have those, um, you know, it's not an ongoing an ongoing infection. So it's really hard to know. Um, but the numbers for smallpox, for example, are somewhere. Well, the highest number I've seen is eight, and and some people would say it's probably more like likely between three and four. Okay, so that's for one, inf- on average in the community, one infected person might infect three or four new people. But it has very big implications for how easy it is to stop an epidemic, right? Because it's, and, and, and then, but then what gets thrown into that is that um, you have some infections where it seems that the average person, that's very uneven. So one of the things that was confusing about the SARS coronavirus, the um, severe uh, Acute uh, yeah it's a very acute respiratory syndrome, <laughs> syndrome virus um, was that it appeared that there were certain individuals who they called super spreaders that were uh, associated with a large amount of the spread whereas most infected people actually didn't infect many other people and so that really confuses things when you're trying to work out what, what the what the average, um, R value might be so for some reason the internet's just dropped out. Is that a general thing, or
1: does every virus have a different um, rate of spreading between people?
0: I mean, there's always going to be a range, and, and, um, but yeah, and, and there might be societal things as well. I mean, if you wanted to go back and model HIV, of course, it's all about sexual behaviour. So if you want to look at it in a certain way, there were certain people who were super spreaders with HIV because they were incredibly promiscuous individuals who had a very large number of of sexual partners and they infected a large number of people. But that was about the mode of transmission and the way it worked. You know, there were some people who became HIV positive and deliberately had sex with as many people as they can out of some sense of vengeance or whatever it was that they had, right? So... Um, again, that's very different than, a, than an infection that's going to be spread through the aerosol route or something. Right. One thing to bear in mind, though, typically, so that, I mean, the things that are going to be important is how much virus is made at a site that can be transmitted. That's one. Um, how mobile are you at the point when you're infectious? That is another really key thing. And uh, can you be identified as being sick when you're infectious? So. Viruses where there is a lot of virus shed at a time when people aren't feeling sick and they're not showing symptoms, that's a dangerous... That, that's a pretty dangerous thing, right? That's like Ebola, isn't it? No, it's no. Ebola, sure. Ebola oh, is the like opposite. opposite. Yeah. The opposite. So, so you yeah. know, Ebola, you're making lots of virus when you're already pretty sick. Right. You know, and actually, um, uh, dead bodies are a huge risk with, with Ebola. But... Um, and, and so, culturally, that was a really big problem because if relatives are, are, are dealing with and, um, you know, the very sick people <clears throat> and doing um, burial rituals and stuff like that, then there's a huge risk of transmission in that situation. And if you can intervene and stop those cultural practices, um, then you're really breaking that cycle pretty quickly.
1: And I suppose that's one of those things that sort of uh, overpronounced what the infectious rate actually is in West Africa because of certain cultural practices like um, eating bats, which are a reservoir for...
0: Yeah, but that's not a problem, right? So so the virus originally came from the bats and it got into the human population. All of the spread that was then in West Africa was human-to-humans transmission. So it wasn't new transmissions from an animal reservoir. It was in the human population. But if you're in a situation where there's no public infrastructure, you know, if somebody dies in your house... You don't really have a lot of choice but to deal with that yourself, yeah. or to go somewhere else. And if there's no other shelter, what are you going to do? If there's no way of protecting yourself, what what are you what are you going to do? You know, and that makes those situations so incredibly different to what we have in Australia. You know, in Australia, if someone in your family dies in your house, um, you're not going to have to deal with that yourself. In fact, you're not allowed to deal with that yourself. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Um, these are things that make a huge difference, yeah.
1: And do you reckon that if this uh, epidemic of uh, Ebola happened here in Australia, it would have been well well controlled because uh, there's a faster response in terms of health and in terms of uh, identifying the source and the practices and maybe the risk factors? That... Most
0: of the practices don't exist Yeah, in the first place. You know, sick people in Australia go to hospitals, right? The, the greatest risk in a place like Australia is that a person who is sick with something like Ebola comes into a hospital and they're not identified as as being somebody who poses a risk, okay? And and so you would get a second wave of hospital infections because the original infection wasn't identified. And then the size of that outbreak is pretty much limited by um, how long it takes you to work out what's going on and start dealing appropriately with the person who's sick. Because as soon as you can identify, and then start dealing appropriately with the people who are sick, and their bodily fluids and all that, it's just going to stop. Right. That's that's it. You know. So so that's what's going to is, is what's going to stop it. And 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 you know that's really what happened with those few cases that that people went. You know they were. Um, they were identified quickly and you know so some of the stuff that we did here was smart too they held out they had these cards that they stuck out at the airport you know have you been to west africa or whatever you know it's not a bad thing to make people aware so that if they get sick with something and they've been somewhere where where there might be a risk that they're smart enough to go to the hospital and say you know look this is where i've been Again, your other problem is that uh, another one of my supervisor's favourite sayings was that the art of being a doctor is working out what's wrong with something from the lies that they tell you. Um, <laughs> he was an infectious diseases guy, right? So he ran a, a STD clinic. So he was used to people not owning up to what they were really doing. <laughs> but, but it's true. You know, people, people have a fear of the health system as well sometimes. And they won't want to present to a hospital or they won't want to own up to what yeah, you know, because I stigma thing too, isn't it? I think that's right. Um, but by and large, you know, in a place like Australia, you're not, you know, you're not going to avoid it. Yeah. So right. it was never it was never that risk as far as as far as at least I could tell.
1: Yeah. And just one final question mm. to wrap up this part. Um, now that we've talked about Ebola. Um, using that as an example, what? In the future, it's inevitable that we're going to see more infectious diseases emerging, variants of the same, like influenza. How prepared is Australia to deal with an event that's as, um, I don't want to use this word, but I can't think of another one, catastrophic as, say, um, swine flu or the SARS virus?
0: I think it's hard to say. I mean, I'm not involved in public health in that way. I would like to think that we have a fairly good you know, we have a fairly good system in place. The thing that concerns me about Australia is that all of our responses that I know about are largely reliant on state-based services. So every state has its own, you know, we don't have the equivalent of a Centers for Disease Control in Australia. Um, I know all of the laboratories in the different states, at least the virologists that I know there, you know, they all talk to each other and they're sensible people and that's okay. How that gets communicated to things at the federal level, I don't know. And communication is very key. Yeah. Um, but my feeling is that simply having an effective health system is that's that's the start of it. Um, having very um, capable diagnostic abilities, people who are smart running those, um, who are able to adapt and to learn to identify new things i guess maybe one of the things that makes it better now even more so than it used to be is that we have a lot of very good um, nucleic acid based detection methods so once you've identified the sequence of something you're looking at it's very easy to to go from one things you're currently looking for to look for something new as soon as you know what that sequence is um, much more It's much more rapid and much easier than the old traditional methods, which relied on sometimes growing the virus in cells. And having to do some electron microscopy, um, needing to have um, particular antibodies or reagents generated. You know, all of that, I think, means that our ability to recognise and diagnose and track things is just so much better now um, than it was, you know, when I started out, which was, you know... 25 odd years ago, whenever it was, you know, before this nucleic acid technology, things like PCRs became really well established. Um, you know, beyond that, it comes down to how well um, the people in charge of policy um, and, you know, people can, can be convinced of taking a sensible course of action and then that becomes the realm of politics. Yeah. Um, and, then, and also, you know, what kind of disease it is. You know, some things would get lost in the community pretty fast. You know, it, it, it's essentially the, the swine flu that came through. There was no hope of containing that, right? Because it's just so virulent.
1: It? It, it it would, yeah. It
0: it, it was without well, the thing was that it would each infected person would infect too many other people. Um, it was spread very efficiently in the community, and um, and so there was no amount of quarantine or anything that you could do. And, you know, despite the sort of popular perception that the whole um, swine flu epidemic was a complete fizzle and whatever, it was a bad flu year. More yeah. people got sick, and and the demographic of people who got very sick was different than it would be for a normal flu. Um, so I think there's a, a sort of misunderstanding that a new pandemic is always going to be, the virus is going to be, um, have a higher case fatality rate and that's not necessarily always going to be true it's just that it's a new a new variant Um, less people in the community will have any immunity to it potentially no one will have immunity to it so there are many many more people who could become infected and so even if the 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 case fatality rate is normal more people are infected so more people are going to be affected There'll, there'll be more hospitalizations there'll be more deaths there'll be more everything that's just the way it is, you know. If you're lucky and happens to have a relatively low case fatality rate, you know, maybe that that's you know that's a better thing. But it's not always going to be the case that the pandemic virus is is virulent. And you know, we have this thing with the the, the bird flu, the H five N one bird flu, which is um, on one hand terrifying because we've got a high, a high high case fatality rate, but Um, the reason for that is it grows very well deep in the lungs. So it makes you very sick. But that also means it's not as transmissible because viruses that are in the upper respiratory tract transmit better. So the fact that it makes you sicker is almost... um, Yeah, to to have those two things together is harder. And that's something I guess we've learned from that virus, that, that it's harder for a virus to do those two tricks. That's not to say that a flu virus can't or won't, that that virus might not reassort with something else and do something that can do everything you know all these things are possible and we learn more and more about the fact that you know the simple models where you say that a virus acquires a single mutation which allows us to do a new trick you know what we know now is that sometimes a virus will acquire a mutation that for a while seems to have no effect but it's carried in the population, and it, but it is required for a second mutation to emerge, which then allows a new trick or a third. Yeah. You know, and we, we kind of have a much better understanding of, of these things now. Um, you know, you never want to say that, 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 that a trick is not out there, right? Um, but, but typically, you know, a lot of experts, if you ask them, you know, to predict where the next infectious threat is, um, their answer is going to be, it's where you're not looking. Yeah, that's and right. I think that's a very good, a very good approach. You know, at the time when the swine flu came through in t- two thousand and nine, everyone was looking for bird bird viruses out of Asia, mm-hmm. and and we had essentially a virus that was most recently out of out of pigs come from from Mexico yeah, and, yeah. And, and southern US. Right? Um, no one thought that coronaviruses, which is the family from which SARS came from, was anything but a scientific curiosity before SARS. Um, Before HIV, in fact, retrovirus research was sort of being wound back. So retroviruses were really interesting because some retroviruses were associated with cancers in the number of animals. And so there was a lot of hope that it would lead to a lot of understanding of cancer. And, And in fact, it did. We did learn a lot about cancer by the way that retroviruses work, but it turns out that there aren't human retroviruses that cause a lot of human cancers. And for that reason, you know, the people doing retrovirology were, were pretty much, you know, pressed at that time. But if it wasn't for that community, it would have taken so much longer to get on top of HIV, which turned out to be retrovirus. You know, it was just one of those things. Yep. So. so
1: it's such an unpredictable course and unpredictable
0: yeah, Actually, and and important. you know, I would I would say it's really important to maintain a diversity of urology. and something we're very bad at doing, you know, the way that we fund our our medical research in particular is that you have to make a case that what you're studying is important now.
1: Mm-hmm. In terms of preventative health, right?
0: or, or, or whatever, you know, um, you really so so one of the reasons why I've gotten back into doing a lot of herpes simplex virus work is that herpes simplex virus is more fundable than vaccinia virus vaccinia it was a vaccine that was used to eradicate a disease that is now gone
1: yeah.
0: um, there are cases that can be put that we can use it as a tool to understand parts of the immune system which is what i do um but you're always susceptible to the case that you're only going to learn some someone might say you're only going to learn stuff that's relevant to this virus and this virus is no longer relevant yeah. whether that's true or not you don't know you know um you don't know whether a, a pox virus or a relative, you know, may actually be a, a problem in the future. It's kind of hard to know. But you take a virus that infects a lot of people and it causes damage to a lot of people, you can always make the case that it's relevant to human health.
1: I heard from a very trusted source that Russia has a lot of reserves of pox virus. So uh, I'm look, guessing that it's going to be uh, something in the
0: future. Uh, look, cool. every, everyone everyone says that, that, yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, there was a big deal about biodefense when I was still working in the, in the US. So I worked in the States between 2001 and 2003, so that was just the time the biodefense agenda was getting up. And I heard stories like that. so you know I'd ask people who had been at foot or more higher level meetings. And I remember one guy saying that he was always deeply skeptical, but he says the, f- the, f- the closer I get to people who may actually know something, the more frightened they are. Which was a little bit scary, but then again, you know, you're also going away from people who are scientists and towards people who are spooks or or government officials and stuff like that. So um, people whose job it is to be more suspicious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, with that, I think it's a good time to call an end to um, this section of this uh, special podcast that we have today. And I'd like to thank you so much, David, for taking your time off to do this. Uh, We really appreciate it. And and one of the things that we really hope that comes out of this podcast is more awareness about some of these issues that we've discussed. And there's no um, argument that we have discussed quite a broad (laughs) range of topics over here today. Yeah,
0: probably a bit too broad. Yeah. Um,
1: But we really hope you enjoyed it. And thank you again. No, it's fine.
0: But what I will say is that, you know, if anything I've said people think sounds a bit dodgy, you know, go use Dr. Google and call me out on it. Get back on the podcast. (laughs) Ask more questions and we can do it again. That would be amazing. I, I, you can I'd find his email
1: address on Google.
0: <laughs> no, don't email me. <laughs> <I> <laughs> email Common person. Grounds and we'll <laughs> go through them.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, we get a lot of abuse anyways. <laughs> Thank you so much again, David. You're welcome.
0: Our episode today was put together by our executive producer, Gautam, and our co editor, Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com. Or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.